Book One, Chapter Six of Two Treatises of Civil Government. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa. Two Treatises of Civil Government by John Locke. Book One, Chapter Six, of Adam's Title to Sovereignty by Fatherhood. There is one thing more and then I think I have given you all that our author brings for proof of Adam's sovereignty, and that is a supposition of a natural right of dominion over his children by being their father. And this title of fatherhood he is so pleased with that you will find it brought in almost every page, particularly, he says, not only Adam but the succeeding patriarchs had by right of fatherhood royal authority over their children, page 12 and in the same page, this subjection of children being the fountain of all regal authority, etc. This being, as one would think by his so frequent mentioning it, the main basis of all his frame, we may well expect clear and evident reason for it, since he lays it down as a position necessary to his purpose, that every man that is born is so far from being free, that by his very birth he becomes a subject of him that begets him observations 156, so that Adam, being the only man created, and all ever since being begotten, nobody has been born free. If we ask how Adam comes by this power over his children, he tells us here it is by begetting them. And so again, observations 223, this natural dominion of Adam, says he, may be proved out of Grotius himself, who teacheth that Generatione jus acquiritur parentibus in liberos. And indeed the act of begetting being that which makes a man a father, his right of a father over his children can naturally arise from nothing else. Grotius tells us not here how far this jus in liberos, this power of parents over their children, extends. But our author, always very clear in the point, assures us it is supreme power and like that of absolute monarchs over their slaves, absolute power of life and death. He that should demand of him how, or for what reason it is, that begetting a child gives the father such an absolute power over him, will find him answer nothing. We are to take his word for this, as well as several other things. And by that the laws of nature and the constitutions of government must stand or fall. Had he been an absolute monarch, this way of talking might have suited well enough. Proratione voluntas might have been of force in his mouth, but in the way of proof or argument is very unbecoming, and will little advantage his plea for absolute monarchy. Sir Robert has too much lessened a subject's authority to leave himself the hopes of establishing anything by his bare saying it. One slave's opinion without proof is not of weight enough to dispose of the liberty and fortunes of all mankind. If all men are not, as I think they are, naturally equal, I am sure all slaves are. And then I may without presumption oppose my single opinion to his, and be confident that my saying that begetting of children makes them not slaves to their fathers, as certainly sets all mankind free, as his affirming the contrary makes them all slaves. But that this position which is the foundation of all their doctrine who would have monarchy to be, may have all fair play, let us hear what reasons others give for it, 
since our author offers none. The argument I have heard others make use of to prove that fathers, by begetting them, come by an absolute power over their children, is this, that fathers have a power over the lives of their children because they give them life and being, which is the only proof it is capable of, since there can be no reason why naturally one man should have any claim or pretense of right over that in another, which was never his, which he bestowed not, but was received from the bounty of another. 1. I answer that every one who gives another anything has not always thereby a right to take it away again. But two, they who say the father gives life to his children are so dazzled with the thoughts of monarchy that they do not as they ought remember God, who is the author and giver of life. It is in him alone we live, move, and have our being. How can he be thought to give life to another that knows not wherein his own life consists? Philosophers are at a loss about it after their most diligent inquiries, and anatomists, after their whole lives and studies spent in dissections and diligent examining the bodies of men, confess their ignorance in the structure and use of many parts of man's body, and in that operation wherein life consists in the whole. And doth the rude ploughman, or the more ignorant voluptuary, frame or fashion such an admirable engine as this is, and then put life and sense into it? Can any man say he formed the parts that are necessary to the life of his child? Or can he suppose himself to give the life, and yet not know what subject is fit to receive it, nor what actions or organs are necessary for its reception or preservation? To give life to that which has yet no being is to frame and make a living creature, fashion the parts, and mould and suit them to their uses and having proportioned and fitted them together, to put into them a living soul. He that could do this might indeed have some pretense to destroy his own workmanship. But is there any one so bold that dares thus far arrogate to himself the incomprehensible works of the Almighty? Who alone did at first and continues still to make a living soul, he alone can breathe in the breath of life. If any one thinks himself an artist at this, let him number up the parts of his child's body which he hath made, tell me their uses and operations, and when the living and rational soul began to inhabit this curious structure, when sense began, and how this engine which he has framed thinks and reasons. If he made it, let him, when it is out of order, mend it, at least tell wherein the defects lie. Shall he that made the eye not see, says the psalmist, Psalm 94, 9, See these men's vanities. The structure of that one part is sufficient to convince us of an all-wise contriver, and he has so visible a claim to us as his workmanship, that one of the ordinary appellations of God in Scripture is God our Maker, and the Lord our Maker. And therefore, though our author, for the magnifying his fatherhood, be pleased to say, Observations 159, that even the power which God himself exerciseth over mankind is by right of fatherhood. Yet this fatherhood is such an one as utterly excludes all pretense of title in earthly parents. For he is king because he is indeed maker of us all, which no parents can pretend to be of their children. But had men skill and power to make their children, it is not so slight a piece of workmanship 
that it can be imagined they could make them without designing it. What father of a thousand, when he begets a child, thinks farther than the satisfying his present appetite? God, in his infinite wisdom, has put strong desires of copulation into the constitution of men, thereby to continue the race of mankind, which he doth most commonly without the intention, and often against the consent and will of the begetter. And indeed those who desire and design children are but the occasions of their being, and when they design and wish to beget them, do little more towards their making than Deucalion and his wife in the fable did towards the making of mankind by throwing pebbles over their heads. But grant that the parents made their children, gave them life and being, and that hence there followed an absolute power. This would give the father but a joint dominion with the mother over them, for nobody can deny but that the woman hath an equal share, if not the greater, as nourishing the child a long time in her own body out of her own substance. There it is fashioned, and from her it receives the materials and principles of its constitution. And it is so hard to imagine the rational soul should presently inhabit the yet unformed embryo as soon as the father has done his part in the act of generation, that if it must be supposed to derive anything from the parents, it must certainly owe most to the mother. But be that as it will, the mother cannot be denied an equal share in begetting of the child, and so the absolute authority of the father will not arise from hence. Our author, indeed, is of another mind. For he says, We know that God at the creation gave the sovereignty to the man over the woman, as being the nobler and principal agent in generation. Observations 172. I remember not this in my Bible. And when the place is brought where God, at the creation, gave the sovereignty to man over the woman, and that for this reason, because he is the nobler and principal agent in generation, it will be time enough to consider and answer it. But it is no new thing for our author to tell us his own fancies for certain and divine truths, though there be often a great deal of difference between his and divine revelations. For God in the scripture says, His father and his mother that begot him. They who allege the practice of mankind for exposing or selling their children as a proof of their power over them are with Sir Robert happy arguers, and cannot but recommend their opinion by founding it on the most shameful action and most unnatural murder human nature is capable of. The dens of lions and nurseries of wolves know no such cruelty as this. These savage inhabitants of the desert obey God and nature in being tender and careful of their offspring. They will hunt, watch, fight, and almost starve for the preservation of their young, never part with them, never forsake them, till they are able to shift for themselves. And is it the privilege of man alone to act more contrary to nature than the wild and most untamed part of the creation? Doth God forbid us, under the severest penalty, that of death, to take away the life of any man, a stranger, and upon provocation? And does he permit us to destroy those he has given us the charge and care of, and by the dictates of nature and reason, as well as his revealed command, requires us to preserve? He has in all the parts of the creation taken a peculiar care to propagate and continue the several species of creatures, and makes the individuals act so strongly to this end, 
that they sometimes neglect their own private good for it, and seem to forget that general rule which nature teaches all things of self-preservation, and the preservation of their young as the strongest principle in them overrules the constitution of their particular natures. Thus we see, when their young stand in need of it, the timorous become valiant, the fierce and savage kind, and the ravenous tender and liberal. But if the example of what hath been done be the rule of what ought to be, history would have furnished our author with instances of this absolute fatherly power in its height and perfection, and he might have showed us in Peru people that begot children on purpose to fatten and eat them. The story is so remarkable that I cannot but set it down in the author's words. In some provinces, says he, they were so licorice after man's flesh that they would not have the patience to stay till the breath was out of the body, but would suck the blood as it ran from the wounds of the dying man. They had public shambles of man's flesh, and their madness herein was to that degree that they spared not their own children, which they had begot on strangers taken in war, for they made their captives their mistresses, and choicely nourished the children they had by them, till about thirteen years old they butchered and ate them. And they served the mothers after the same fashion when they grew past childbearing, and ceased to bring them any more roasters. Garcilaso de la Vega, Historia des Incas de Peru, 1, 1, chapter 12. Thus far can the busy mind of man carry him to a brutality below the level of beasts, when he quits his reason which places him almost equal to angels. Nor can it be otherwise in a creature whose thoughts are more than the sands and wider than the ocean, where fancy and passion must needs run him into strange courses, if reason, which is his only star and compass, be not that he steers by. The imagination is always restless, and suggests variety of thoughts, and the will, reason being laid aside, is ready for every extravagant project, and in this state he that goes farthest out of the way is thought fittest to lead, and is sure of most followers. And when fashion hath once established what folly or craft began, custom makes it sacred, and it will be thought impudence or madness to contradict or question it. He that will impartially survey the nations of the world will find so much of their religions, governments, and manners, brought in and continued amongst them by these means, that he will have but little reverence for the practices which are in use and credit amongst men, and will have reason to think that the woods and forests, where the irrational, untaught inhabitants keep right by following nature, are fitter to give us rules than cities and palaces, where those that call themselves civil and rational go out of their way by authority of example. If precedents are sufficient to establish a rule in this case, our author might have found in holy writ children sacrificed by their parents, and this amongst the people of God themselves, the psalmist tells us, Psalm 106, 38, They shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and of their daughters, whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan. But God judged not of this by our author's rule, nor allowed of the authority of practice against his righteous law. But as it follows there, The land was polluted with blood, therefore was the wrath of the Lord kindled against his people insomuch that he abhorred his own inheritance. The killing of their children, though it were fashionable, was charged on them as innocent blood, and so had in the account of God 
the guilt of murder, as the offering them to idols had the guilt of idolatry. Be it, then, as Sir Robert says, that anciently it was usual for men to sell and castrate their children, observations 155. Let it be that they exposed them. Add to it, if you please, for this is still greater power, that they begat them for their tables to fat and eat them. If this proves a right to do so, we may by the same argument justify adultery, incest, and sodomy. For there are examples of these two, both ancient and modern, sins which I suppose have their principal aggravation from this, that they cross the main intention of nature, which willeth the increase of mankind, and the continuation of the species in the highest perfection, and the distinction of families, with the security of the marriage-bed, as necessary thereunto. In confirmation of this natural authority of the father, our author brings a lame proof from the positive command of God in Scripture. His words are, To confirm the natural right of regal power, we find in the Decalogue that the law which enjoins obedience to kings is delivered in the terms, Honour thy father. Page 23. Whereas many confess that government only in the abstract is the ordinance of God, they are not able to prove any such ordinance in the Scripture, but only in the fatherly power, and therefore we find the commandment that enjoins obedience to superiors given in the terms, Honour thy father, so that not only the power and right of government, but the form of the power of governing, and the person having the power, are all the ordinances of God. The first father had not only simply power, but power monarchical, as he was father immediately from God. Observations 254 to the same purpose, the same law is cited by our author in several other places, and just after the same fashion, that is, and mother, as apocryphal words, are always left out, a great argument of our author's ingenuity and the goodness of his cause, which required in its defender zeal to a degree of warmth able to warp the sacred rule of the word of God to make it comply with his present occasion a way of proceeding not unusual to those who embrace not truths because reason and revelation offer them, but espouse tenets and parties for ends different from truth, and then resolve at any rate to defend them, and so do with the words and sense of authors they would fit to their purpose, just as Procrustes did with his guests, lop or stretch them, as may best fit them to the size of their notions, and they always prove like those so served, deformed, lame, and useless. For had our author set down this command without garbling, as God gave it, and joined mother to father, every reader would have seen that it had made directly against him, and that it was so far from establishing the monarchical power of the father, that it set up the mother equal with him, and enjoined nothing but what was due in common to both father and mother for that is the constant tenor of the scripture, Honour thy father and thy mother, Exodus 20. He that smiteth his father or mother shall surely be put to death, 21.15. He that curseth his father or mother shall surely be put to death, verse 17, repeated Leviticus 20.9, and by our Saviour, Matthew 15.4. Ye shall fear every man his mother and his father, Leviticus 19.3. If a man have a rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, then shall his father and his mother 
lay hold on him, and say, This our son is stubborn and rebellious, he will not obey our voice. Deuteronomy 21, 18, 19, 20, 21. Cursed be he that setteth light by his father or his mother. 28.16 My son, hear the instructions of thy father, and forsake not the law of thy mother, are the words of Solomon, a king who was not ignorant of what belonged to him as a father or a king, and yet he joins father and mother together in all the instructions he gives children quite through his book of Proverbs. Woe unto him that saith unto his father, what begettest thou? Or to the woman, what hast thou brought forth? Isaiah 11, verse 10. In thee have they set light by father or mother. Ezekiel 28, 2. And it shall come to pass, that when any shall yet prophesy, then his father and his mother that begat him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live. And his father and his mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesieth. Zechariah 13.3 Here not the father only, but the father and mother jointly had power in this case of life and death. Thus ran the law of the Old Testament, and in the New they are likewise joined, in the obedience of their children, Ephesians 6.1, the rule is, children obey your parents, and I do not remember that I anywhere read, children obey your father, and no more. The scripture joins mother too in that homage which is due from children, and had there been any text where the honour or obedience of children had been directed to the father alone, it is not likely that our author, who pretends to build all upon scripture, would have omitted it. Nay, the scripture makes the authority of father and mother, in respect of those they have begot, so equal that in some places it neglects even the priority of order which is thought due to the father, and the mother is put first, as Leviticus 19.3, from which so constantly joining father and mother together, as is found quite through the scripture, we may conclude that the honour they have a title to from their children is one common right, belonging so equally to them both, that neither can claim it wholly, neither can be excluded. One would wonder, then, how our author infers from the fifth commandment that all power was originally in the father, how he finds monarchical power of government settled and fixed by the commandment, Honour thy father and thy mother. If all the honour due by the commandment, be it what it will, be the only right of the father, because he, as our author says, has the sovereignty over the woman, as being the nobler and principler agent in generation, why did God afterwards all along join the mother with him to share in his honour? Can the father, by this sovereignty of his, discharge the child from paying this honour to his mother? The scripture gave no such licence to the Jews, and yet there were often breaches wide enough betwixt husband and wife, even to divorce and separation. And I think nobody will say a child may withhold honour from his mother, or, as the scripture terms it, set light by her, though his father should command him to do so no more than the mother could dispense with him for neglecting to honour his father. Whereby it is plain that this command of God gives the father no sovereignty, no supremacy. I agree with our author that the title to this honour is vested in the parents by nature, and is a right which accrues to them by their having begotten their children, and God, by many positive declarations, has confirmed it to them. 
I also allow our author's rule, that in grants and gifts that have their original from God and nature, as the power of the father, let me add, and mother, for whom God hath joined together, let no man put asunder, no inferior power of men can limit, nor make any law of prescription against them. Observations 158. So that the mother, having by this law of God a right to honour from her children, which is not subject to the will of her husband, we see this absolute monarchical power of the father can neither be founded on it nor consist with it. And he has a power very far from monarchical, very far from that absoluteness our author contends for, when another has over his subjects the same power he hath, and by the same title. And therefore he cannot forbear saying himself, that he cannot see how any man's children can be free from subjection to their parents, page 12, which, in common speech, I think, signifies mother as well as father, or if parents here signifies only father, it is the first time I ever yet knew it to do so, and by such an use of words one may say anything. By our author's doctrine, the father, having absolute jurisdiction over his children, has also the same over their issue, and the consequence is good, were it true, that the father had such a power, and yet I ask our author whether the grandfather by his sovereignty could discharge the grandchild from paying to his father the honour due to him by the fifth commandment. If the grandfather hath, by right of fatherhood, sole sovereign power in him, and that obedience which is due to the supreme magistrate be commanded in these words, Honour thy father, it is certain the grandfather might dispense with the grandson's honouring his father, which, since it is evident in common sense he cannot, it follows from hence that honour thy father and mother cannot mean an absolute subjection to a sovereign power, but something else. The right, therefore, which parents have by nature, and which is confirmed to them by the fifth commandment, cannot be that political dominion which our author would derive from it, for that being in every civil society supreme somewhere can discharge any subject from any political obedience to any one of his fellow subjects. But what law of the magistrate can give a child liberty not to honour his father and mother? It is an eternal law, annexed purely to the relation of parents and children, and so contains nothing of the magistrate's power in it, nor is subjected to it. Our author says, God hath given to a father a right or liberty to alien his power over his children to any other. Observations 155. I doubt whether he can alien wholly the right of honour that is due from them, but be that as it will, this I am sure he cannot alien and retain the same power. If therefore the magistrate's sovereignty be, as our author would have it, nothing but the authority of a supreme father, page 23, it is unavoidable that if the magistrate hath all this paternal right, as he must have if fatherhood be the fountain of all authority, then the subjects, though fathers, can have no power over their children, no right to honour from them, for it cannot be all in another's hands and a part remain with the parents. So that according to our author's own doctrine, honour thy father and mother cannot possibly be understood of political subjection and obedience, since the laws, both in the Old and New Testament, that commanded children to honour and obey their parents, were given to such whose fathers were under civil government, 
and fellow-subjects with them in political societies, and to have bid them honour and obey their parents, in our author's sense, had been to bid them be subjects to those who had no title to it, the right to obedience from subjects being all vested in another, and instead of teaching obedience, this had been to foment sedition, by setting up powers that were not. If, therefore, this command, honour thy father and mother, concern political dominion, it directly overthrows our author's monarchy, since it being to be paid by every child to his father, even in society every father must necessarily have political dominion, and there will be as many sovereigns as there are fathers, besides that the mother, too, hath her title, which destroys the sovereignty of one supreme monarch. But if honour thy father and mother mean something distinct from political power, as necessarily it must, it is besides our author's business, and serves nothing to his purpose. The law that enjoins obedience to kings is delivered, says our author, in the terms honour thy father, as if all power were originally in the father. Observations 254. And that law is also delivered, say I, in the terms honour thy mother, as if all power were originally in the mother. I appeal whether the argument be not as good on one side as the other, father and mother being joined all along in the Old and New Testament, wherever honour or obedience is enjoined children. Again our author tells us, Observations 254, that this command, honour thy father, gives the right to govern, and makes the form of government monarchical. To which I answer that if by honour thy father be meant obedience to the political power of the magistrate, it concerns not any duty we owe to our natural fathers, who are subjects, because they, by our author's doctrine, are divested of all that power, it being placed wholly in the prince, and so being equally subject and slaves with their children can have no right by that title to any such honour or obedience as contains in it political subjection. If honour thy father and mother signifies the duty we owe our natural parents, as by our Saviour's interpretation, Matthew 15.4, and all the other mentioned places, it is plain it does, then it cannot concern political obedience, but a duty that is owing to persons who have no title to sovereignty, nor any political authority as magistrates over subjects. For the person of a private father, and a title to obedience due to the supreme magistrate, are things inconsistent, and therefore this command, which must necessarily comprehend the persons of our natural fathers, must mean a duty we owe them distinct from our obedience to the magistrate, and from which the most absolute power of princes cannot absolve us. What this duty is, we shall in its due place examine. And thus we have at last got through all that in our author looks like an argument for that absolute unlimited sovereignty, described section 8, which he supposes in Adam, so that mankind ever since have been all born slaves without any title to freedom. But if creation, which gave nothing but a being, made not Adam prince of his posterity, if Adam, Genesis 1.28, was not constituted lord of mankind, nor had a private dominion given him exclusive of his children, but only a right and power over the earth, and inferior creatures in common with the children of men, if also, Genesis 3.16, God gave not any political power to Adam over his wife and children, 
but only subjected Eve to Adam as a punishment, or foretold the subjection of the weaker sex in the ordering the common concernments of their families, but gave not thereby to Adam as to the husband power of life and death, which necessarily belongs to the magistrate. If fathers by begetting their children acquire no such power over them, and if the command, Honour thy father and mother, give it not, but only enjoins a duty owing to parents equally, whether subjects or not, and to the mother as well as the father, if all this be so, as I think by what has been said is very evident, then man has a natural freedom, notwithstanding all our author confidently says to the contrary. Since all that share in the same common nature, faculties and powers, are in nature equal, and ought to partake in the same common rights and privileges, till the manifest appointment of God, who is Lord over all, blessed for ever, can be produced to show any particular person's supremacy, or a man's own consent subjects him to a superior. This is so plain that our author confesses that Sir John Haywood, Blackwood, and Berkeley, the great vindicators of the right of kings, could not deny it, but admit with one consent the natural liberty and equality of mankind, for a truth unquestionable. And our author hath been so far from producing anything that may make good his great position, that Adam was absolute monarch, and so men are not naturally free, that even his own proofs make against him, so that to use his own way of arguing, the first erroneous principle failing, the whole fabric of this vast engine of absolute power and tyranny drops down of itself and there needs no more to be said in answer to all that he builds upon so false and frail a foundation. But to save others the pains, were there any need, he is not sparing himself to show by his own contradictions the weakness of his own doctrine. Adam's absolute and sole dominion is that which he is everywhere full of, and all along builds on. And yet he tells us, page 12, that as Adam was lord of his children, so his children under him had a command and power over their own children. The unlimited and undivided sovereignty of Adam's fatherhood, by our author's computation, stood but a little while, only during the first generation, but as soon as he had grandchildren, Sir Robert could give but a very ill account of it. Adam, as father of his children, saith he, hath an absolute unlimited royal power over them, and by virtue thereof over those that they begot, and so to all generations. And yet his children, viz. Cain and Seth, have a paternal power over their children at the same time, so that they are at the same time absolute lords, and yet vassals and slaves. Adam has all the authority as grandfather of the people, and they have a part of it as fathers of a part of them. He is absolute over them and their posterity, by having begotten them, and yet they are absolute over their children by the same title. No, says our author, Adam's children under him had power over their own children, but still with subordination to the first parent. A good distinction that sounds well, and it is pity it signifies nothing, nor can be reconciled with our author's words. I readily grant that, supposing Adam's absolute power over his posterity, any of his children might have from him a delegated and so a subordinate power over a part, or all the rest. But that cannot be the power our author speaks of here. 
It is not a power by grant and commission, but the natural paternal power he supposes a father to have over his children. For one, he says, as Adam was lord of his children, so his children under him had a power over their children. They were then lords over their own children after the same manner and by the same title that Adam was, i.e., by right of generation, by right of fatherhood. Two, it is plain he means the natural power of fathers, because he limits it to be only over their own children. A delegated power has no such limitation as only over their own children. It might be over others as well as their own children. 3. If it were a delegated power, it must appear in Scripture. But there is no ground in Scripture to affirm that Adam's children had any other power over theirs than what they naturally had as fathers but that he means here paternal power and no other is past doubt, from the inference he makes in these words immediately following. I see not, then, how the children of Adam or of any man else can be free from subjection to their parents, whereby it appears that the power on one side and the subjection on the other our author here speaks of is that natural power and subjection between parents and children, for that which every man's children owed could be no other, and that our author always affirms to be absolute and unlimited. This natural power of parents over their children, Adam had over his posterity, says our author, and this power of parents over their children, his children had over theirs, in his lifetime, says our author also. So that Adam, by a natural right of father, had an absolute, unlimited power of all his posterity, and at the same time his children had by the same right absolute unlimited power over theirs. Here, then, are two absolute unlimited powers existing together, which I would have anybody reconcile one to another, or to common sense. For the salvo he has put in of subordination makes it more absurd. To have one absolute, unlimited, nay, unlimitable power in subordination to another is so manifest a contradiction that nothing can be more. Adam is absolute prince with the unlimited authority of fatherhood over all his posterity. All his posterity are then absolutely his subjects, and, as our author says, his slaves, children and grandchildren are equally in this state of subjection and slavery. And yet, says our author, the children of Adam have paternal, i.e. absolute unlimited power, over their own children, which in plain English is, they are slaves and absolute princes at the same time, and in the same government, and one part of the subjects have an absolute unlimited power over the other, by the natural right of parentage. If anyone will suppose, in favour of our author, that he here meant that parents who are in subjection themselves to the absolute authority of their father have yet some power over their children, I confess he is something nearer the truth, but he will not at all hereby help our author. For he, nowhere speaking of the paternal power but as an absolute unlimited authority, cannot be supposed to understand anything else here, unless he himself had limited it and showed how far it reached. And that he means here paternal authority in that large extent is plain from the immediate following words. This subjection of children being, says he, the foundation of all regal authority. Page 12. 
The subjection, then, that in the former line he says, every man is in to his parents, and consequently what Adam's grandchildren were in to their parents, was that which was the fountain of all regal authority, i.e., according to our author, absolute unlimitable authority. And thus Adam's children had regal authority over their children, whilst they themselves were subjects to their father and fellow subjects with their children. But let him mean as he pleases. It is plain he allows Adam's children to have paternal power, page 12, as also all other fathers to have paternal power over their children. Observations 156. From whence one of these two things will necessarily follow, that either Adam's children, even in his lifetime, had, and so all other fathers have, as he phrases it, page 12, by right of fatherhood, royal authority over their children, or else that Adam, by right of fatherhood, had not royal authority. For it cannot be but that paternal power does or does not give royal authority to them that have it. If it does not, then Adam could not be sovereign by this title, nor anybody else, and then there is an end of all our author's politics at once. If it does give royal authority, then every one that has paternal power has royal authority, and then, by our author's patriarchal government, there will be as many kings as there are fathers. And thus, what a monarchy he hath set up, let him and his disciples consider. Princes certainly will have great reason to thank him for these new politics, which set up as many absolute kings in every country as there are fathers of children. And yet who can blame our author for it, it lying unavoidably in the way of one discoursing upon our author's principles? For having placed an absolute power in fathers by right of begetting, he could not easily resolve how much of this power belonged to a son over the children he had begotten, and so it fell out to be a very hard matter to give all the power, as he does, to Adam, and yet allow a part in his lifetime to his children, when they were parents, and which he knew not well how to deny them. This makes him so doubtful in his expressions, and so uncertain where to place this absolute natural power which he calls fatherhood. Sometimes Adam alone has it all, as page 13, observations 244, 245, and preface. Sometimes parents have it, which word scarce signifies the father alone, page 12, 19. Sometimes children during their father's lifetime, as page 12. Sometimes fathers of families, as page 78 and 79. Sometimes fathers indefinitely, observations 155. Sometimes the heir to Adam, observations 253. Sometimes the posterity of Adam, 244, 246. Sometimes prime fathers, all sons or grandchildren of Noah, observations 244. Sometimes the eldest parents, page 12. Sometimes all kings, page 19. Sometimes all that have supreme power, observations 245. Sometimes heirs to those first progenitors who were at first the natural parents of the whole people, page 19. Sometimes an elective king, page 23. Sometimes those with a few or a multitude that govern the commonwealth, page 23. Sometimes he that can catch it, an usurper, 
page 23, observations 155. Thus, this new nothing that is to carry with it all power, authority, and government, this fatherhood, which is to design the person and establish the throne of monarchs whom the people are to obey, may, according to Sir Robert, come into any hands, anyhow, and so by his politics give to democracy royal authority, and make an usurper a lawful prince. And if it will do all these fine feats, much good do our author and all his followers with their omnipotent fatherhood, which can serve for nothing but to unsettle and destroy all the lawful governments in the world, and to establish in their room disorder, tyranny, and usurpation. End of chapter 6